Let's take our seats. Do please take up Daniel. That would be really great if you could take up the book of uh, Daniel. The page numbers are in the bulletin and they'll help you. We have reached the end of our series on Daniel and we've had 16 weeks of kings and captives and angels and demons and lions and fire and horns and eyeballs and eyeballs on horns and severed hands and nightmare statues and weird beasts and detailed history and very, very, very long readings. (laughs) Daniel can be so strange and so difficult that just for some respite we had to take a break in the middle of this series and instead talk about money just for a rest. What I love about this church, many things, one of the things I love about this church is that some of you have come to me and you've said that the only thing you lament about this series on Daniel is that we couldn't study the book of Revelation at the same time. (laughs) So we will. Revelation chapter 12 says this. Long before the conflict of kingdoms that we've examined in the book of Daniel, Revelation 12 says this. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Before the creation of of, uh, everything that we see today, two ranks of angel armies met in civil war. But the dragon was defeated, there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. This is where the forces come from that we've been looking at in Daniel. This is where the powers behind the powers come from. And the power behind the powers behind the powers come from. Satan once was an angel. And he and his cohort sought to enthrone themselves. They sought to take over the kingdom of God. They sought to dethrone their creator and enthrone themselves. And having come into conflict with the king and the kingdom of God and their creator, they have been defeated and the demonic forces have been thrown out of heaven and have had to satisfy themselves ever since, manipulating the lesser kingdoms of this world. Now, says Daniel, their end is nigh. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time, at the end, shall arise Michael. The same Michael from Revelation that I just read to you, the same Michael that we studied in depth in chapter 10 a few weeks ago, the most powerful warrior in God's angel army, is coming again to deal with Satan again. And in verse 1, Daniel says, At that time, your people shall be delivered. God simply promises right here at the end of the book of Daniel to deliver his people in the end, and he did. Now, how can I say he did deliver us in the end if the end hasn't happened yet? How can I describe a future event in the past tense? The reason why is because although the ending hasn't ended yet, the ending has begun. It began with Jesus Christ. The end times started with Jesus Christ. The end times will end with Christ returning with Michael and throwing Satan out of the earth as he was thrown out of heaven before, but they began on the cross of Christ. 
the last days, the final period, the beginning of the end through to the end of the end, started with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1.13 says this. He has delivered us, that's in the past tense, from the domain of darkness, from that kingdom of Satan, from the kingdom of Satan and darkness, and has transferred us, past tense, moved us over into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, present tense, the forgiveness of sins. The ending has begun in Jesus. The conflict of kingdoms is drawing to a close in Jesus. We, the believers, the saints, Christians, have been transferred from that demonic kingdom and the thrall of Satan who has enthroned himself, and we have been placed into a far greater kingdom in Christ Jesus already. Satan's end has begun. And if you have turned to Christ, you have moved from one kingdom to the other already. Now, redemption is a wonderful thing. But if you have been redeemed, it means that beforehand you were enslaved. And forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But if you've been forgiven, it means beforehand you were in debt. And deliverance is a wonderful thing. But if you've been delivered, it means beforehand you were completely trapped. You were in a place that you could not escape. And in Christ Jesus, you have escaped. He has delivered you, transferred you, broken the bonds of sin, redeemed you from sin, forgiven you that debt, and delivered you from death. And because he took on the sin, and he paid off that debt, and died the death that we deserved and were facing when we were inhabitants of our former kingdom, and because he rose again, we know that it worked. We know that we really belong to Jesus, and we really will live with him forever. If you are in Christ Jesus. Though the last battle is yet to take place, you are already on the winning side and the victory is already yours. Daniel puts it more poetically than that. He says in verse 1, our names are already written in the book. What book? It's the book of life, the book of truth, the book of remembrance. It is God's written record in advance of that day in God's foreknowledge of who is saved and who is not. God's record of who goes where in the end. If you're in Christ Jesus, you know that you're in the book. Now, I think it's uh, quite popular right now uh, in theology, even some parts of Christian theology, to deny this. To say there's no such book, there's no such end, there's no such Lord. There is a real desire in theology to dial down the contrast and to smooth out the distinction between these two kingdoms. There's a desire and a yearning to hold to the thesis that that really everyone is saved, to to merge the two kingdoms in our thought, to uh, render what is really binary as a spectrum instead, where we find ourselves on some part of a grey scale and all all right in the end. Universalism is the idea that everyone is saved universally in the end. Uh, it has a bedfellow, neo-universalism, the idea that, that almost everyone is saved in the end. That is except for the very worst of all sinners. In neo-universalism, there is a hell, but there's only three guys in it. Hitler, Stalin, and of course the bloke who invented the bagpipes. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. Yeah, but what about the bloke who invented the deviled egg? (laughs) 
Well, church, the clue's in the name. So universalism. This is the idea there are not really two kingdoms, there's just one. Or perhaps there are a multiplicity of kingdoms that are all broadly equivalent in some way. And you hear this idea of universalism expressed, given voice in in phrases like this. Well, all roads lead to the same destination. Well, we're all climbing up different faces of the same mountain. Well, we all worship the same God, which I do not recommend you say in certain Middle Eastern countries because they'll chop your head off for blasphemy. I cannot make anyone agree with me on this point. But the irony is, if you disagree with me, you only prove my point. We do not all believe the same thing. And some beliefs are antithetical to one another, irreconcilable with one another. What I can do is show you clearly and plainly from the book of Daniel at least that God presents us with the idea that there are in fact two kingdoms and only one of them is the kingdom of God. Two very different kingdoms, two very different kings, two very different outcomes for the inhabitants of each. There is no blending of the kingdoms in Daniel, no equality of the kingdoms in Daniel, and no compatibility between them. One God, one throne, one ending, determined and judged by the one God at the time that the one God sets in the way that the one God sets. And at that time, verse 2 says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. The dead will rise. As we say in the creed each week, we look for the resurrection of the dead. We are waiting for actual corpses to come out of the ground and go to heaven. And this is the very end of the very end now that hoves into view. And um, when Christ returns, Michael will come with him. This is the general resurrection that we're talking about. When Christ shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, i.e. all the other kingdoms will. At this time, all will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The awakeness, showing that this thing is clearly experienced, the everlastingness of the life, contrasted with the everlastingness of contempt, clearly showing that both of these things are real, both of these things are experienced, and both of these things are irreconcilably different. For Christians, we are ready. We're like, bring it on. I am ready for that day because I've already been transferred into the kingdom of life and light. I've already been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and death. My name is already in the book. I am good to go. I have an appointment, and I know it's going to be kept. And so we believers, we await the end with confidence, expectation, joy. And if it doesn't happen in the middle of this very long sermon, we have a job to do until it does. Those who are wise, the believers, we've looked at that already two weeks ago, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We're back to the weird stuff. Back to the apocalyptic symbolism. We don't actually become stars when we die. I make funeral visits, and sometimes people believe this. They, they say, you know, well, Uncle so-and-so is a star now, and, you know, auntie such-and-such is a rainbow now. Um, 
astronomers would have noticed, I think, if every time someone died they became a star. But the the apparent permanence of the star is an image, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol or a sign. Stars, you know, we know they don't actually last forever, they're explosions, but but they they seem to last a long time. And we're being told that, that in the same way Christians last forever. And not only that, stars are useful. Stars are able to be used in navigation. If you're lost, you can use a star to get your bearings. And likewise, Christians are supposed to shine and be useful to those in darkness and point them in the right direction to Jesus Christ. The purpose of a Christian is to shine like a star and help a non-Christian navigate this sinful world and turn to Christ and enter the book of life. Now, I want to encourage you This is actually a lot easier than you might think. To point someone to Jesus, to lead someone to faith, is actually really easy. And in the end times, there will be a real hunger for Jesus Christ. There is a a ramping up, an intensification of people's desire to find out if there is more to this life than what they can see around them. An increase in a yearning for spiritual food. Have you ever been hungry, physically hungry? Have you ever had a real hunger on? Have you ever, in your hunger, really desired something enormously specific, a very particular type of food? Have you ever found yourself sitting there really wanting a French bread ham sandwich with French butter from La Gourmandine on Butler Street, for example? (laughs) The lesson is never write a sermon when you're hungry. If you really wanted the French bread sandwich from La Gourmandine and on Butler Street, and you've gone to your kitchen and discovered that you don't have any French bread or French ham or French butter, did you feel a bit disappointed? And maybe grab something else, like a bag of chips, and you eat the whole bag of chips, you even eat one of those big ones, and, and you're like, ah, I'm still not satisfied. And so you go back and you grab a piece of fruit and you eat that, and you're still not satisfied, and you find yourself going back in the kitchen and you grab a big slice of cake, Uh, that you stole from the women's group. And then, uh, because they don't eat it, they just look at it, uh, which is why we have the women's group. And then maybe a big piece of chocolate. And then, you know, you just go back into the kitchen and you start picking at stuff all day long. And at the end of the day, in the evening, you're still going back to the cupboard and the fridge, raiding it, unsatisfied. Our culture, I believe, is in that place. Our culture has a deep yearning for something specific, it's Jesus Christ. And they are looking all over the place for anything to fill that hunger and that void and that gap, something it doesn't have. They're seeking and they're not quite finding it yet, but we have found it and we know that it's Jesus Christ and our job is to point people to him. In that time, verse 4 tells us, many shall run to and fro, to and fro, It means to rush, roam, or range. It means to look everywhere, like a chicken with its head cut off. Just, I think what we're seeing around us right now is a real increase in in spiritualism and interest in spirituality. People are running around looking for wisdom anywhere they can find it. They keep going back to the spiritual cupboard, taking another thing. Different religions, self-help books from the airport bookshop, 
political causes, spiritual practices, often indulging the flesh and doing what they like and mortifying the flesh and denying themselves things that they are allowed, often at the same time, doing the wrong thing, avoiding the right thing. The population of Satan's kingdom is starving. It is hungry. It is constantly judged. It is constantly failing. It is constantly seeking to signal its virtue to its neighbors. Look, I support this cause. Look, I added this thing to my Facebook feed. Look, I retweeted this thing. Look, I'm on the right side. Look at my bumper sticker. Constantly failing. Constantly feeling shame. Constantly feeling they don't measure up to their neighbors. Constantly thinking they don't belong in church. Constantly facing contempt and constantly having it for others. Constantly seeking the next thing, the next technology, the next toy, the next possession. Always going back for more and never, ever satisfied. Amos, chapter 8, verse 12 says of this time frame. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, it's the same phrase, to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I want us to be a church that is characterized by compassion. I want us to have our hearts break for those who are looking in the wrong places. And I want us simply not to judge people, but to point them to Jesus Christ and to reveal to them the grace that we have received. I once dwelled completely in the kingdom of Satan. That was my home, and I hated it. And Jesus lifted me out of that place and brought me into his kingdom of light because he felt like it. I did nothing to deserve that. I want us to be a church that knows that for ourselves and yearns for that for others. Now the passage gets really weird. More symbolic, more visionary. John Goldingay, the scholar in his commentary, calls the, the last part of the book of Daniel a section of unclarity. I didn't even know that was a word. Okay. There are two figures. One of them was wearing linen, symbolic of purity again. And Daniel hears the conversation with a very, very logical question. Surely the same question we're all asking, when does it end? How long shall it be till the end? And the linen man raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever, highly symbolic, of a solemn oath, highly symbolic of the authenticity and the truth of what he says as he swears and points to heaven and then gives his answer with God as the witness to the answer. Then comes the answer, and it's not an answer. How long till the end? A time, times, and half a time. How long is a piece of string? Twice half its own length. Very unclarity. Um, When I was 10, I went on a hike, a school hike, with a local policeman. And um, it just occurred to me during the 8 o'clock service that it's not normal to go on long hikes with policemen. And there must have been something going on that it was felt I needed that experience for the penny drops. Um, We went on Dartmoor. You know where The Hound of the Baskervilles was filmed and set in the actual book? The fog and beasts and, you know, bogs and all sorts of stuff. That's where we walked for a whole week with a policeman. So, yeah, I don't know why my parents did that, but um, I think it helped. During this very long, wet, miserable walk with the policeman, we moaned all the time. 
this group of reprobates. Uh, PC Marshal, the police constable. How long uh, will it be? How far will it be? Like, oh, he would say, a good mile. And no matter how many times we asked this question, and no matter how far we'd walked or had to go, the answer was always the same, a good mile. But when we asked how long it would take, he would say, a good hour. And he just kept saying this. It was a placeholder. It was a nonsense. It was a, a, a phrase to make us be quiet and go away. And uh, scholars, some of them believe that's what this is. A meaningless phrase, a time, times and half a time. It's a good mile. And it's just a, a thing to make Daniel be quiet. Uh, others say, no, no, no. If you look at the Hebrew, it doesn't mean that at all. It really means something specific. This phrase repeated three times in a weird way means three and a half years. It's a very precise amount of time. And then others say, well, hang on a minute. If it really means three and a half years, how does the three and a half years correlate to the precise number of days in verse 11? And if you can make it correlate to the number of days in verse 11, why is there a different number of days in verse 12? And if there's a different number of days in verse 12, how do they correlate to the different number of days in the book of Revelation? It doesn't make any sense. And you see how they get themselves tied up in all of this stuff, and I want to say they're probably all wrong. Almost certainly, these are literal days, actual numbers of days, very precisely and carefully measured from God's perspective. We can take comfort in knowing that they are measured from God's perspective. We just don't know when they begin. That's our problem. We don't know. When Jesus is asked when these days begin, when the end ends, in Matthew 24, he says even he doesn't know. Jesus doesn't know. The angels don't know. Daniel doesn't know. The comfort doesn't come from the fact that we can predict the very date of Christ's return. It comes from the fact that we know he will. That's where the comfort comes from. And these numbers, as well as being literal, are highly symbolic numbers in a highly symbolic section. The word time is a different word from time from the ones we looked at last week and the week before. It's a God time. It's a type of time that is determined by God and symbolic of something. In other words, God is saying he will return when he returns and he will return. And if you feel confused by that, here is some comfort for you. So was Daniel. And Daniel wrote Daniel. And he was confused by Daniel. He says in verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand my own book. Uh, even though he didn't understand, verse 9 uh, has this being say to him, nonetheless, go your way, Daniel. Now, uh, when uh, I used to have a real job, I worked with uh, another lawyer, and um, she, she had this fantastic received lawyerly accent when she would answer the telephone. She would say, hello, Sharon speaking. Uh, but she was from Barbados, and when her sister would call up, she would slip into a much uh, different accent, really the accent that she spoke at home and used in her own childhood. And often at lunchtimes, her sister would call up for a long conversation, uh, seemingly to bicker. And they would just row and argue and bicker for a good hour, uh, like PC Marshall. Uh, and at the very end of the conversation, when my friend Sharon had had enough, just before she slammed the phone on her sister for sticking her nose into her business, Sharon would say, go about your business, and slam down the phone. Uh, go about your business. Get on with it. Go and do something else. And I think that's what is being said to Daniel here. 
Yeah, you don't understand every facet of everything, but you must go about your business. You must get on with the job that I've given you to do, pointing people to Jesus. This is like the speed limit. Who knows what the speed limit is on Route 28? No one. No one knows. Unless you're driving a heavily overloaded Chevy full of builder's rubble, then it's about 95. Other than that, it is a complete mystery, isn't it, what the actual speed limit is on that road. And, you know, even if we do find out what the speed limit is, no one really understands why. Why is it 55 and then 45 and then 35 and back up to 55 again on a perfectly wide road? No one knows. I am absolutely convinced that the street signs in Western PA are part of some great apocalyptic mystery. (laughs) But we don't need to understand them. We don't need to understand the speed limit to know what direction we want to drive. That is the point. If you're headed... In one direction, it doesn't matter what the speed limit is. That's the point of Daniel. God has defeated Satan, throwing him out of heaven. So much of how that worked is a mystery. God has defeated Satan again, binding him on this earth, on the cross. So much of how that works is a mystery. God will defeat him again in the end of the end, and the end is nigh. But so much of that is a mystery as well. But we don't need to understand how, and we don't need to understand when to know whose side we want to be on today and what direction we want to go. So what shall we do? The end of 16 weeks of Daniel, of eyeballs and severed hands and people on fire and all the rest of it. What shall we do? Daniel concludes very abruptly, go about your business. Go your way till the end. So we will. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in exquisite detail you have prophesied so many numerous historical things over hundreds of years and fulfilled faithfully every single one of those things. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that we would have the grace to trust you to complete that work in Christ Jesus when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We thank you that his kingdom will have no end, though all the others will. And we ask, Lord God, that we would be called, and maybe even today, to move into your kingdom, to become inhabitants of a lively and everlasting kingdom, that we would be ready for that day and anticipate that day though we may not understand every facet of every aspect of how it comes to be, that you would nonetheless find us ready and watchful and waiting for you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.